time opening here. I got a lot I'd like to talk about, and we'll just kind of see how that unfolds. Uh, if everyone will take out their Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 8 here in a second. While you're turning there, I'll tell you a quick story I, I read here real recently. Um, these four pastors were out on a retreat, and uh, one of the pastors said, okay, you know, we all have those things in, in the story, they call them besetting sins. You, scripture tells us that to lay aside every weight and chain that doth so easily beset us. So what he's meaning by this is saying, like, those things that we have that are unique to us, that are our personal struggles that we kind of tend to go round and round and round with all the time. So he, he looks to his friends and he says, okay, let's, let's share with each other what our besetting sin is. And so the first guy says, he's like, you know, um, sometimes when I get overwhelmed and, and all the stuff going on, I have a bottle of wine in my basement and I'll go and drink a little bit of it. The next guy says, okay, well, I have a punching bag in my basement. And when the saints really make me mad, I go down there and, and punch the punching bag and pretend it's them. Then, <laughs> then the, third, the third pastor says, well, you know, um, my, my thing is, is that I just get so angry with people that I just don't even want to look at them anymore, so I'll avoid them for weeks. And then finally, the fourth guy is completely silent, and all three of them look at him and say, well, brother, what, what, what's yours? He said, well, my besetting sin is gossip, and I cannot wait to get home. So, <laughs> Exodus chapter 1, we're going to start here, start in verse 1. It says, now these are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt. Every man and his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Uh, verse 5, and all, these, all the souls that came out of the loins of Jacob were 70 souls, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and his brethren and all that generation, and the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. I'm going to take a short pause here. I forgot to turn off my sleep thing, and it's going to shut me out as soon as I walk away. I already had a kind of a, a panic attack this morning. I got up here, and I, I, I always, normally always print stuff out so that I can have it with me. And sometime back, Pastor Powell was like, Jeremy, you just need to get in the 21st century and start preaching from, you know, your device and not have to print stuff. And I, I would tell him, you know, my biggest fear is I'm going to get to church to preach and it's not going to turn on. And I kid you not, I walked in the door this morning, and my iPad would not turn on. Apparently, it did not charge last night. So, we almost had a very different message, but God came through. You know, it's always interesting to me on a personal level how, um, how a message comes together for when you're teaching or preaching. And, and if you ask 10 pastors or 10 preachers, you will probably hear 10 different stories of, of how maybe they go about writing their messages or deciding what it is that they're going to say. And if you ask me on any given day, you'll probably hear a different way that I do it because I don't always have a specific, like, I'm going to do these things every time. Sometimes it'll be, I will be reading a passage in the scripture and a word or a theme will, will jump out off the pages to me and I'd be like, okay, this is what I need to talk about. 
But there are other times I'll be watching some kind of documentary about history or whatever it is, and I'll see this theme go throughout that, and I'll be like, ooh, I should talk about that. And, and the reason that, that I like to do that a lot is this, because even though maybe what I'm watching happened 50, 60, 70 years ago, the truth is times have changed, but people haven't. Right? We still struggle with the same sins and arrogance and, and issues and trials. And so we can look throughout all of history and see sometimes these repeating themes over and over and over. But you know, the messages that are often the hardest to write are the ones that start in my own home. It's easy to look in a book and read about the trials of a person I've never seen or will likely never meet. In this setting, it is easy to separate emotions and logic. It's often easy to see what, what that person or group should have done differently. It's always easier to look back to the past where we already know the outcome and critique the choices of others. But the stories that begin in our own home and affect our own families can often feel like walking in a room and just as you went into the room and you see the walls, you see the floor, you see the furniture, all of a sudden, someone turns out all of the lights. As the darkness sets in, your heart begins to beat just a bit faster. Your brain knows where you are. Your brain saw the walls and the floor of the room that you just walked into. But somehow, in the complete darkness, your mind begins to flooded, be flooded with fear, anxiety, uncertainty. What do I do now because I can't see what's in front of me? And it's at this point in these times where we may begin to have to ask ourselves this question, where do I go from here? Now, I use the room as a metaphor, but... The truth is, is we all face hardships in different times in our lives. And, and, and for some of us, I'd probably say for all of us, we've had not just that day, but those periods in our life. That time span, weeks, months, maybe even years, where it feels completely dark. You know the people around you, you've been around them your whole life, but when that darkness and uncertainty begins to set in, you become so overwhelmed that you begin to panically say, well, what am I going to do now? Where do I go from here? And that's the question I want to talk about here for our time together this morning. Where do we go from here? Let's look back to our opening text here. Exodus chapter 1, I'm not going to read all of it, but Chapter 1, verse 1 says, Now these are the children of Israel which came into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. And Joseph died, and all his brethren, and all that generation, verse 7, and the children of Israel were fruitful, and increased abundantly, and multiplied, and waxed exceeding mighty, and the land was filled with them. Verse 8, now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. Now, to really kind of understand what is taking place here, why this is so important, why is it that they're mentioning that, that Joseph is long gone, and now there's a new king who, who didn't know Joseph. Why is this even all that important? But to really understand that, we need to back up a good bit. Now, what I would like to do is I'd like to go to the beginning of Genesis and just read all of it. 
but I know I would probably get one chapter in and the room would empty very quickly. Not everybody has that same attention span or wants to hear me talk for that long. But it's important sometimes that we look back at the context, the history that was happening before. Because though the characters change throughout Scripture, it's the same God. And so the way that God deals with people from the past are important in understanding how he's dealing with someone else in a different part of Scripture. So let's back up a little bit. I'm going to give you the incredibly short, fast highlights of the book of Genesis. This will be very quick, so listen close. God made man. Man thought he knew better than God. Adam willingly and knowingly disobeyed the commandment of God. So God removes man from the garden. But I will say the better way I like to think about this is God removed man from his presence. It's not my sermon, but it is worth saying this. Too often we get bent out of shape over the place when we should be focused on the presence. Okay, that was free. Adam and Eve have kids. Cain kills his brother Abel out of jealousy. God gave Adam and Eve Seth to replace Abel. Time goes by, Cain's wickedness is passed down to his descendants until God says that's enough. The earth was so full of sin and wickedness and violence that God decided to purge the wickedness of the world. God sees that Noah is one of the few faithful and spares Noah and his family. After the flood, God uses Noah to begin to repopulate the earth to be fruitful and to uh, multiply. Now, I just covered 2,000 years of history in about two minutes. Chapters 1 through 11 of the book of Genesis covers all of the things I just mentioned. 2,000 years. Now, that may not seem like that big of a deal, but when you look at what happens next, it kind of begins to highlight some things because we go from 11 chapters to cover 2,000 years, and then we slow all the way down. And we take the next 30 chapters, 40 chapters, to cover just three generations. Think about that. We go from the creation to the fall to the flood in 11 chapters. But God thinks it's so important what comes next that he spends all of Genesis talking about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Why? Well... Let's look at Genesis chapter 12. I'm going to read a couple verses here. We're going to look at verse, start in verse 1, and I don't know if I'll read straight through or skip around. We'll see how time goes. Genesis 12, starting in verse 1. Now when the Lord said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham departed as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was seventy and five years old when he departed out of Haran. Now, we... I'm assuming most all of us know this story. Maybe not every detail, but we know the general story here. That after the flood, wickedness was again prevalent throughout all of, all of the earth. And God looks at Abraham and calls him to step outside to be a part or separate himself from the sinful ways of the world. And when God speaks to Abraham, 
what he does is give him a promise. Or the way it's originally written is God gives him a covenant. A testament, Old Testament, New Testament, the word testament means covenant. So when we talk about the Old Covenant, this is where we're starting from. How that man's sin had separated themselves from the presence of God, but from the very beginning in chapter 3 of Genesis, God has a plan to restore that connection, and he begins it with this covenant. The covenant that is given to Abraham is that he would be blessed and that his family would be blessed and that a great nation that was so large that could not be numbered would be blessed through his family. But then he takes it a step further and says, no, no, not, not just great nations, but all of the earth will be blessed as a result of the covenant that God is making right here with Abraham. Now, in this very same chapter, after God speaks with Abraham and calls him out and Abraham is obedient, he hears God's voice literally calling him. It isn't but a few verses later that we find Abraham leaves his home. He walks through this enemy territory. God says, hey, Abraham, you see all of this land over here? It's going to be yours and your family's. Abraham makes a, a, an altar and he's excited and he trusts God and he knows that God has given him a covenant. The covenant that would begin what would bring about the return of, or the return of Christ the first and the second time, if you will. But then just a couple more verses and Abraham finds himself in Egypt. Now Egypt at that time, as scripture talks about a lot, was a mighty nation. Large military, ruled with fear over most people. So when Abraham goes into Egypt, he becomes concerned that the Pharaoh is going to look at his wife and find her so attractive that he might want to take her for his own wife. But Abraham thinks in his mind, but if I say it's my wife, then he's probably just going to kill me so he can have her. So, okay, all right, dear, what I want you to do is you're just going to lie to Pharaoh and tell him you're my sister and not my wife. I don't know why, as many times I've read that, that still is such the weirdest logic to my brain of, of how you come up with that as the solution to this fear. So we know what happens next. They stay there in that time, and, and Pharaoh is going to bring um, Abraham's wife, Sarai, into his concubine. And, and, and that night, though, God appears to Pharaoh in a dream. And he tells Pharaoh, don't touch Sarah. She doesn't belong to you. She belongs to Abraham. Now, Pharaoh comes out after this and says, Hey, Abraham, God showed up to me and told me that this Sarah is not your sister, that it's actually your wife. Is that true? And Abraham's like, yes. And so Pharaoh's like, well, why did you lie to me? Why would you do this? Because what he recognizes is this God who talked to him in his dream was someone who could back up what he was going to say. And so Pharaoh becomes afraid, like, if I mess up with this, this God's probably going to just wipe me completely out. So he tells, he tells Abraham, hey, take your wife and leave. Go on about your way, but get out of my area. So in one chapter, we go from Abraham receiving a covenant with God to bless all of the earth to Abraham trusting in God in the presence of his enemy to then turning to 
lying and allowing his wife to go into the concubine of Pharaoh. And we can look at this and we can say, well, that's very strange. I don't, I don't understand how we get there. But you know, Abraham, he goes on, he makes a bunch of other mistakes. He chooses to not trust God that Sarah would bring about the lineage of this covenant and instead slept with his wife's handmaiden. There are all these different things that happen, but the biggest one is this, and this isn't a mistake, but the biggest thing that happens is finally Abraham has a son named Isaac. And when Isaac was around the age of 30 to 35, they don't know exactly, but, but right in that area, God tells Abraham to take Isaac and bring him up to the mountaintop and that he's going to sacrifice him there on an altar. And I have to imagine at this point that Abraham is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I've gone through all of this stuff over here. I've seen you do all of these things, faced all of these trials in the promise that you're going to give me a son that would carry out this covenant that you've made with me. And now you've given me this son, but now you're telling me to sacrifice him. I can understand why Abraham might be very confused and skeptical and afraid and anxious all at once. But we know what happens. Isaac goes up willingly with his father. He lays on the altar willingly. But before Abraham is able to take the life of Isaac, God intervenes and provides instead a, a ram in the thickets that would take the place of Isaac. This, of course, would be a type and shadow of what God did for you and for me. Because we should have been the one on the altar due to our sin, but instead God provided an escape for us and paid a ransom we could never pay. And unfortunately paid a ransom that many of us may not have even known we needed to pay. So now, Isaac... Abraham dies. Isaac has the promise. Isaac's going to go on, and he's going to fulfill this promise. Now, we don't really hear too much about Isaac doing bad things, per se. But in Genesis 26, something interesting happens. Isaac finds himself back in the same country of Egypt with the same concern that he's going to be killed because of his wife. And Isaac turns around and tells his own wife, Pretend you're my sister so they don't kill me. I know that if I had a daughter, I would probably say, yeah, you're not going to marry into that, that family. <laughs> not if they're going to keep trying to pawn you off to Pharaoh every time. And so Isaac, Isaac is afraid and, and, and he, he does this thing. And wouldn't you know it, God does almost the exact same thing that he did for Abraham. God speaks to Pharaoh, tells Pharaoh, hey, you better not touch her. And he doesn't. Now, I know this seems like, where am I going with this? Just hold on to that thought. We have a promise of a great nation. We have a promise of a covenant, a blessing for all of the earth. But twice we find that the people who are going to bring about the covenant were so afraid that the covenant would fail to happen because they would be killed, that they were willing to give up the very vessel that God was trying to use to fulfill that covenant. And out of fear and desperation, they were going to throw it on the altar and not the good altar. Eventually, Isaac goes on. He has Jacob. 
Jacob, of course, Jacob and Esau. Jacob came second. We hear about Jacob being a surplanter and a liar. That's what his name means. He tricks his father. He tricks his brother and steals the birthright that should have rightfully belonged to Esau as the firstborn. And instead, Jacob is given this. Now, it's easy to pick on Jacob for the stuff that he does early on. You know, as Jacob goes throughout his life, he has to pay a lot for his mistakes. Jacob finds himself at odds with his own brother, who for quite some time is set on killing Jacob to repay him for what he did. Jacob, despite all of this, gets the blessing from Isaac, and he's told, you're going to go over to this country, and you're going to get a wife from this individual who happened to be his uncle. And Jacob shows up to Laban's house and he finds this woman that he wants to marry. He knows that this is the one because Jacob now is the one carrying forth the promise. So he finds this woman and he says, okay, this is the one I want to marry. Well, Laban says, all right, you can have her, but you have to work for seven years here before you can take her. To Jacob's credit, he says, okay, that's a lot, that's a lot of time and work for a wife. So he waits. He does all of this for seven years. And then on the night that things are supposed to be finalized, Laban tricks Jacob to end up consummating the marriage with the sister of who he was going to marry. But now the deed is done and that is unbreakable. So Laban tells Jacob, we'll work seven more years for me and then I'll give you her. And Jacob does it. So for 14 years, Jacob's living in a foreigner's land, in a foreigner's home, working and toiling. And I can't help but imagine as each year goes by, the voice of his father Isaac talking to him about the promise, the covenant that would be passed down probably comes more and more distant. This energy and zeal for, for what God is going to do in the earth becomes clouded by the, the circumstances he finds himself in. How is it that he is going to bring about this great blessing from the God of the universe? And yet here he is being tricked by his own family and having to be in servitude for 14 years. Jacob eventually, he finishes up his time, he leaves, he starts to have his own children, and Jacob ends up having Joseph. Now, Jacob had obviously many other kids. So why does it matter that the story will take the time to stop and talk about Joseph? Well, you see, at this point in Jacob's life, he's, he's further along in age, and there's a lot of things that have taken place. There's a lot of uncertainty, and no doubt, after all that Jacob has been through, that he may even be concerned that God is not going to uphold his end of the deal and bring about this covenant. He's concerned that the promise he was given has now likely slipped through his fingers due to his life of sin and mistakes and hardships and struggles. That promise that once was so bright now seems more of a distant memory. But God blesses Jacob and he has Joseph and the name Joseph literally means God will add. So Jacob sees, wait a minute, I see what's happening. 
despite my sins, my shortcomings, my fears, my mistakes, my struggles, God is still going to be faithful and add not just to him, but to him so that the covenant made all the way back with Abraham could come to pass. So now Joseph is born. Joseph is, is, is given dreams in his earlier years. Twice he's given dreams of how that his brothers and his mother and his father would bow down to him. We know the story that his brothers weren't too keen on that. They were like, you are the runt. We are not going to bow down to you. But Joseph, because of the representation he had of the promise and of God's mercy toward Jacob and his wife, becomes the favorite. He stays in the home while the others toil in the field. He's given a coat of many colors representing the, the promise that God has given to the people. And so his brothers become angry and jealous because how is it this little runt who came so much later in life is now seeming to pass us in importance? So what do they do in their fear, in their jealousy, in their anger? They sell their brother into slavery. And that was a compromise. They wanted to just kill him. But they decide instead to sell him into slavery. They throw him in a ditch and foreigners come in and they take him captive. And we find Joseph thrown into prison. We find Joseph moved to Potter's house, but then lied on by Potiphar's wife and accused of, of assaulting Potiphar's wife, which was completely a lie, but it didn't matter. And I can't help but think that even though Scripture doesn't say this part out loud, there's lots of things Scripture doesn't say because you can't fit 6,000 years, 4,000 years in, in, in that few of pages. But what we can know is that humanity as a whole is prone to fear, anxiety, uncertainty, doubt, disbelief, all of us. All of us. So now Joseph, this kid who was going to be the one representing how God will add, how God will bring about a promise, this one who was given a promise by God himself, finds himself in a jail. And I have to believe that somewhere in his mind, he begins to think, I think God forgot. I think Maybe that promise I thought I had wasn't actually the promise. And little by little, that promise may seem that it's slipping through his hands. I hope you notice a theme here. God's promise is given and given and given, but throughout life, man continues to struggle with believing and trusting in God's promise because all of the world is so loud around them that they don't know who they should listen to Sometimes. So now we find Joseph as an adult. He's obedient to God. God blesses him, moves him into second command in Pharaoh's court. God then uses Joseph to bless his own family because there was a famine in the land. Now, one thing that I also find really interesting, if you go back and read all the references that I'm making here, Abraham faced a, ha a famine. Isaac faced a famine. Jacob faced a famine. 
And yet in all of those times, God was still faithful to provide them with what they need in the moment that they needed. And so here we find Jacob's other brothers and Jacob's family in dire need because there is a massive famine in the land and they don't know what it is they're going to do. So what do they say? Well, Jacob and his family say, okay, we're just going to go down to Egypt. Remember, Jacob thinks that Joseph is dead. His brothers lie to their father about the status of Joseph. So Jacob is convinced that his son's dead and long gone. But now there is this famine in the land and Jacob's like, well, I guess we need to go to Egypt. So they show up to Egypt to beg for additional resources. And wouldn't you know it, out in that same courtyard stood Joseph, who recognized his own brothers. And while most of us would think it's completely justified if at this point Joseph said, yeah, you're all going to jail now. You, you put me into slavery. You wanted to kill me. You lied. You did all of this stuff. You stole my promise, which was his coat. It represented what he was to be. You stole everything that I had from me, and now you stand here before me in need, and you think I should help you. That's not what he said. But I can guarantee you that's what most of us at least would be thinking, if not say out loud. Instead, Joseph remains faithful to God's promise and knows that through every situation he found himself in, and when he had to ask the question, where do I go from here? God just tells him, be faithful and keep moving. And Joseph does. He makes the right decision time after time. And now in this moment, when Joseph has the complete authority and ability to punish his family for what they did to him, he responds in mercy. And he says to his family, he said, listen, listen, it's the past. Because you see what, what you meant for evil. God has turned it for good. Joseph saw in that moment this promise that was given to Abraham and almost lost to his disbelief. That was given to Isaac who struggled the same thing as his father. Who was passed down to Jacob who lied all the time throughout much of his life and was in so much fear that the, it seemed like at any moment the covenant was going to be gone. Joseph recognized that the covenant and its ability to come to pass had nothing to do with any of them. It was not dependent on Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Joseph because the power that was behind the covenant came from God. And even in the moments when they may have looked at their hardship and began to doubt and have disbelief and, and uncertainty, God did not. God did not forget his promise to Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, to you, to me. It's easy to read the stories there and say they should have had faith. But if you were honest today, you would say that there have been times in your own life where God has given you a promise, a covenant, things that he was going to fulfill in your life. 
And yet, with all of the hardships going on and all of the things happening in the news and the media and, and distractions, it can become easy to feel so overwhelmed and afraid and guilty that that promise we received now seems to be slipping through our fingers. I'll tell you a quick story about something that happened literally this past week to me. The past several months in, in my life and in my home have been a bit tumultuous. In December, Christmas Eve, my house flooded from a pipe issue in my, in my bathtub. Well over $20,000 in damage to my home on Christmas Eve. Now, that's enough right there for me. I'm like, that, yeah, I don't, that, that's enough. I don't want to suffer anything else. Let's just leave it at that. But over the course of the next three months, I've had a child who needed emergency surgery. I've had a child who's needed surgery on her knee. I had heard God's promise for me to go, that he would provide a better job for me so that I could be here more, that I could be more involved in ministry and I could be home with my family. And I moved into that job, and then just a couple weeks ago, I found out I was diagnosed with lupus. I'm, I'm sure some of you may or may not know what lupus is. It's not that uncommon of a thing. But if you've had lupus, and it's specifically if you've had what they refer to as a flare-up, you understand that it's painful. For six weeks, every morning, just getting out of the bed hurt so bad. There are mornings I'd wake up, and I... I feel like I couldn't squeeze my hand together because of the pain. And if that wasn't enough, the new job that I had that seemed to be going fantastic, I've told my wife a million times, I love my new boss. Everything is going amazing. All of a sudden, I show up to work one day. My boss says, hey, come on into my office. And she hands me a piece of paper with a 30-day a, a performance improvement plan. What that means is this. When you get that paper, it says you got 30 days to fix this or you're done. Well, I never got a verbal warning of anything I did wrong. I never got a written warning of anything I did wrong or a second written warning, which is what's, how it's supposed to progress where you get to the place where they're literally saying they're going to fire you. All of a sudden, I have now this letter saying you've got 30 days or you're going to be fired. And as I'm sure you can imagine, like, this seemed like the icing on the cake. I mean, God, I don't understand. You, you, you know, I, I prayed and prayed and prayed that things would move in a way that I could be more involved in ministry and with my family and I could be there for my kids more often. And yet, over the past months, it's just been disaster after disaster after disaster. And getting that piece of paper in my mind put me in a place where all I could say is, where do I go from here? So you begin to have doubts in your own mind. Was this my fault? Did I do something wrong? Did I sin? Did I mess something up that has caused all of this to happen? Well... A couple days ago, and I'm, I won't share names because it's not, it's not relevant whatsoever to the story, but I just, 
here less than a week ago um, when I was sitting up talking to my wife after a service, and I was just venting all of my frustrations and just, you know, trying to talk it out with her and, 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 and really just kind of process everything that had been going on. My wife says, okay, well, on that note, um, someone had told me this, this specific story and they, they wanted to, to hear your feedback on it. And the gist of it was that this person had been given promises by God on numerous occasions who had been prophesied to by people. And, and yet here it is that, the, that it never came to pass. And, and now there was this feeling, this emotion that why did God not do what he said he was going to do? Like, I've heard over and over about how that I have this promise, this thing, this covenant, and yet it isn't happening. And in that moment, that person became so overwhelmed with grief, grief and despair that the questions began to ask, was it my fault? Did I do something wrong? Was the person who said it to me wrong? And so my wife's telling me the story, and she asked me, she said, how would you respond in that situation? And I'm not going to lie, almost immediately, I'm like, okay, God, I see what's happening here. You see, because it's always easier to give advice to someone else in the midst of their storm. It's always easy when it's not directly affecting you to look objectively and say, hey, hey, this is what you should do. So already knowing this, before I open my mouth, this is my response. The question of where do I go from here in this moment, and did I mess it up, did, is it my fault? Really, there's two ways you can ask that question, two different angles, but both of them are equally bad. So the first one. The first one is the one that I think probably most of us feel, and that is guilt. It's something we did. We didn't pray enough, we didn't give enough, we didn't study enough, we didn't fast enough. We will find every possible reason that we messed up God's plan for our lives. But the problem with that is this. You see, when God gave us the promise, we only saw it in that singular moment. But when God gave the promise, he sits outside of time. So you see, he already saw the things that were going to take place next. He saw the mistakes, the hardships, the struggles, the trials, your imperfections. He saw all of that and still gave you the promise in the first place. So if you allow yourself to truly believe that you messed up God's plan, now you have two issues on your hand. Number one, you're calling God a liar. But number two, you are saying to yourself... That your sin is stronger than Calvary. That your sin is stronger than what the word of God is and his promise in your life. It's not done maliciously. It's not said in a way to be mean to God. But it's what we do too often that we, we wear this guilt day after day. And then if we're not careful, that guilt will bring us to this place. Well, I am so far gone at this point. God will never be able to use me again. It's best if I just go ahead and quit. It's easy to go from a place of feeling bad to feeling guilt, to feeling depression, and to completely losing out.
It's easy. It's easy to make that progression. But there's another way you could also approach this issue. You could ask this question. Well, maybe the issue had nothing to do with me. It had to do with that person who told it to me. They're a false prophet. Or they were wrong. Or they lied. Or they meant to hurt me. Well, here's the issue with that. Number one, you're not God. Do you know for a certain that it was a false prophecy? Have you seen through to the end of your life and know for a certain that it's not going to happen? Do you know their heart better than they do? No. But if you allow yourself to then blame others for why you feel like you've lost the promise, what that begins to do is allow the seed of bitterness and resentment to grow up in you so that now, anytime someone speaks into your life from God, you will not believe them. Because, hey, if that other person over there lied to me, you were probably lying too. And you will isolate yourself from the people of God, which will inevitably cause you to isolate yourself from the presence of God. So what's the answer? Well, the answer is a change in a question. The question instead needs to be, where do I go from here? Because just like how Abraham thought the promise was gone, but God worked it out. Just like Isaac thought the promise was gone, but God was faithful and, and moved the promise forward. Just like Jacob and Joseph and Moses and people throughout all of scriptures had moments of doubt and disbelief, of, of anger and resentment and bitterness, God was still faithful through all of it. So what God is wanting you and me to understand this morning is this. God has given you promises and he's going to make them come to pass. And here's why. It's not just because you're so amazingly wonderful. No, it's because God is so gracious and loving toward his people. And he made a promise to Abraham that through him, all of the world would be blessed. And we know, of course, he was referencing Jesus. And it happened. And Jesus died on a cross for you and for me. And he rose from the grave to have power over death, hell, and the grave. So what you need to understand is your mistakes are not too bad that the power of God cannot continue to carry the promise forward. When you ask the question of where do I go from here, from this point on, the question is not, should not be asked in the sense of all is lost, I don't know what to do now. No. The question of where do I go from here is this. God, I know I've got a fat lip right now and a black eye and I hurt and I'm lost and I'm confused. I don't know what the next step is going to be, but I do know this. You're faithful. You sit outside of time. So God, I'm asking you, where do I go from here? Because he's the only one who knows the next step that needs to happen for that promise to continue to move forward to the people who need it. Where do I go from here needs to become a battle cry for the saints. That no matter how hard pressed we are on all sides, we know that God still has our back. That no matter what happens from this point forward, we can say where do I go and know that God will have the right answer.
let me, let me wrap this up because I have completely gone away with my notes here. But that's okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this up with a quick story. It's a story some of you might have heard. And if you have, just stick with me for a moment because it's worth hearing again. There is this painting of the devil playing chess against a man. The, the legend goes, and it's probably true, but it's somewhat of a legend because who knows how the stories change slightly over the years, but the point still stands. So according to legend, the story goes like this. A chess grandmaster came upon this intriguing painting in the Louvre Museum alongside other famous art pieces such as the Mona Lisa. The grandmaster stared for a long time very intently at the chessboard in the painting and finally noticed something surprising. You see, the, the typical interpretation of the painting was that the devil had the man in checkmate. That's the name of the, the picture. The name of the painting is Checkmate. The devil seemed to be, from the outside looking in, it seemed to be that the devil was the obvious victor. The man, if you see the picture, has his hand rested on his, his face, rested on his hand, looking completely lost and defeated and, and nothing left that he could possibly do. So he began to think, now he is in Checkmate. He is lost. But according to the arrangement of the pieces left on the chessboard, this grandmaster noticed something quite amazing. He noticed that the king still had one more move to make. Checkmate is the point in which the king, the primary purpose of the game, the pawn isn't the point of chess, the rook isn't the point of chess, the bishop not the point of chess. The point of chess is the king. And the game's not over until the king is defeated. You see, in this painting, the world would see it as this man is defeated because he doesn't know where he can go. But this grandmaster looking on realized, wait a minute, wait a minute. The king still has one more move. And since it's all about the king, the game ain't over yet. So he backs up and he, he begins to, to declare to the people around him. He said, hey, hey, no, 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 you're wrong. It isn't over. The king still has one more move. And not just one more move. It's one more move the king can make that will defeat the devil. What I want you to know is that you may look at your life in the present moment and say there is nowhere else. I can go. I don't see any moves left on the board that I can make. But the good news is, is you're not the key figure on the board. And there's one more move the king can make. And it's a move that will defeat the enemy. You see, the king we serve cannot lose. Cannot lose. You have to get this in your heart and in your soul and believe this so uncontrovertedly that you, when you're facing uncertainty, you say, whoa, 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 my king cannot lose. 
And since the game is for him, about him, and to him, that means I can't lose either. Because my king cannot lose. When you find yourself feeling so afraid that the mistakes that you have made leave you feeling with nowhere to go, remember the king has one more move. When you feel so overwhelmed and disheartened, remember the king has one more move. But, but you don't understand, Jeremy. You don't understand. I am surpassed. I am encompassed on all sides by the enemy. If I look left, there the enemy is. If I look right, there he is. If I look behind me, there he is. Good news. God goes before you. God walks beside you. God is your rear guard. So whereas you see the enemy surrounding you, you need to see it's the king that's surrounding you. Yeah, let the enemy come from the front. God's already there. Let the enemy come and try to surprise you, but God is your rear guard. He's your shield, your buckler, your strong tower, your defense. He is your ever-present help in the time of need. Let's all stand. Church, as we get ready to go into this next part of service of worship, I need you to make up in your mind that no matter how sad, afraid, angry I am in this moment, I'm going to worship the king because I know he still has one more move. Come back in 10 minutes ready to worship.